Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Historicism, an essay by C.S. Lewis. Part 1. Epigraph. He that would fly without wings must fly in his dreams. Coleridge. I give the name historicism to the belief that men can, by the use of their natural powers, discover an inner meaning in the historical process. I say, by the use of their natural powers, because I do not propose to deal with any man who claims to know the meaning either of all history or of some particular historical event by divine revelation. What I mean by a historicist is a man who asks me to accept his account of the inner meaning of history on the grounds of his learning and genius. If he had asked me to accept it on the grounds that it had been shown him in a vision, that would be another matter. I should have said to him nothing. His claim, with supporting evidence in the way of sanctity and miracles, would not be for me to judge. This does not mean that I am setting up a distinction to be applied by myself between inspired and uninspired writers. The distinction is not between those who have and those who lack inspiration, but between those who claim and those who do not claim it. With the former, I have at present no concern. I say an inner meaning because I am not classifying as historicists those who find a meaning in history in any sense whatever. Thus, to find causal connections between historical events is, in my terminology, the work of a historian, not of a historicist. A historian, without becoming a historicist, may certainly infer unknown events from known ones. He may even infer future events from past ones. Prediction may be a folly, but it is not historicism. He may interpret the past in the sense of reconstructing it imaginatively, making us feel, as far as may be, what it was like, and, in that sense, what it meant to a man to be a 12th century villain or a Roman equus. What makes all these activities proper to the historian is that in them the conclusions, like the premises, are historical. The mark of the historicist, on the other hand, is that he tries to get from historical premises conclusions which are more than historical, conclusions metaphysical or theological or to coin a word, atheological. The historian and the historicist may both say that something must have happened. But must, in the mouth of a genuine historian, will refer only to a ratio cognoscendi. Since A happened, B must have preceded it. If William the Bastard arrived in England, he must have crossed the sea. But must in the mouth of a historicist, can have quite a different meaning. It may mean that events fell out as they did because of some ultimate, transcendent necessity in the ground of things. When Carlyle spoke of history as a book of revelations, he was a historicist. When Novalis called history an evangel, he was a historicist. When Hegel saw in history the progressive self-manifestation of absolute spirit, he was a historicist. When a village woman says that her wicked father-in-law's paralytic stroke is a judgment on him, she is a historicist. Evolutionism, 
when it ceases to be simply a theorem in biology and becomes a principle for interpreting the total historical process, is a form of historicism. Keats's Hyperion is the epic of historicism, and the words of Oceanus, "'Tis the eternal law that first in beauty should be first in might," are as fine a specimen of historicism as you could wish to find. The contention of this article is that historicism is an illusion, and that historicists are, at the very best, wasting their time. I hope it is already clear that in criticizing historicists, I am not at all criticizing historians. It is not formally impossible that a historicist and a historian should be the same man, but the two characters are in fact very seldom combined. It is usually theologians, philosophers, and politicians who become historicists. Historicism exists on many levels. The lowest form of it is one that I have already mentioned. The doctrine that our calamities, or more often our neighbor's calamities, are judgments, which here means divine condemnations or punishments. This sort of historicism sometimes endeavors to support itself by the authority of the Old Testament. Some people even talk as if it were the peculiar mark of the Hebrew prophets to interpret history in this way. To that, I have two replies. Firstly, the scriptures come before me as a book claiming divine inspiration. I am not prepared to argue with the prophets. But if any man thinks that because God was pleased to reveal certain calamities as judgments to certain chosen persons, he is therefore entitled to generalize and read all calamities in the same way? I submit that this is a non sequitur, unless, of course, that man claims to be himself a prophet. And then I must refer his claim to more competent judges. But secondly, we must insist that such an interpretation of history was not the characteristic of ancient Hebrew religion, not the thing which sets it apart and makes it uniquely valuable. On the contrary, this is precisely what it shares with popular paganism. To attribute calamity to the offended gods, and therefore to seek out and punish the offender, is the most natural thing in the world, and therefore the worldwide method. Examples such as the plague in Iliad A, and the plague at the opening of the Oedipus Tyrannus come at once to mind. The distinctive thing, the precious peculiarity of Scripture, is the series of divine rebuffs which this naive and spontaneous type of historicism there receives. In the whole course of Jewish history, in the book of Job, in Isaiah's suffering servant, in our Lord's answers about the disaster at Siloam, and the man born blind. If this sort of historicism survives, it survives in spite of Christianity. And in a vague form, it certainly does survive. Some who in general deserve to be called true historians are betrayed into writing as if nothing failed or succeeded that did not somehow deserve to do so. We must guard against the emotional overtones of a phrase like the judgment of history. It might lure us into the vulgarest of all vulgar errors, that of idolizing as the goddess history what manlier ages belabored as the strumpet fortune. That would sink us below the Christian, or even the best pagan level. The very Vikings and Stoics knew better. But subtler 
and more cultivated types of historicism now also claim that their view is especially congenial to Christianity. It has become a commonplace, as Friar Paul Henry lately remarked in his Denneke lecture at Oxford, to say that Judaic and Christian thought are distinguished from pagan and pantheistic thought precisely by the significance which they attribute to history. For the pantheist, we are told, the content of time is simply illusion. History is a dream, and salvation consists in awaking. For the Greeks, we are told, history was a mere flux, or at best, cyclic. Significance was to be sought not in becoming, but in being. For Christianity, on the other hand, history is a story with a well-defined plot, pivoted on creation, fall, redemption, and judgment. It is indeed the divine revelation par excellence, the revelation which includes all other revelations. That history in a certain sense must be all this for a Christian, I do not deny. In what sense will be explained later. For the moment, I submit that the contrast as commonly drawn between Judaic or Christian thought on the one hand, and pagan or pantheistic on the other, is in some measure illusory. In the modern world, quite plainly, historicism has a pantheistic ancestor in Hegel, and a materialistic progeny in the Marxists. It has proved so far a stronger weapon in our enemies' hands than in ours. If Christian historicism is to be recommended as an apologetic weapon, it had better be recommended by the maxim, Fas est el abhasta doceri. Right it is to be taught, even by the enemy. Than on the ground of any supposedly inherent congeniality. And if we look at the past, we shall find that the contrast works well as between Greek and Christian, but not as between Christian and other types of pagan. The Norse gods, for example, unlike the Homeric, are beings rooted in a historical process. Living under the shadow of Ragnarok, they are preoccupied with time. Odin is almost the god of anxiety. In that way, Wagner's Wotan is amazingly true to the Edaic original. In Norse theology, cosmic history is neither a cycle nor a flux. It is irreversible, tragic epic marching deathward to the drumbeat of omens and prophecies. And even if we rule out Norse paganism on the ground that it was possibly influenced by Christianity, what shall we do with the Romans? It is quite clear that they did not regard history with the indifference, or with the merely scientific or anecdotal interests, of the Greeks. They seem to have been a nation of historicists. I have pointed out elsewhere that all Roman ethic before Virgil was probably metrical chronicle, and the subject was always the same the coming to be of Rome. What Virgil essentially did was to give this perennial theme a new unity by his symbolical structure. The Aeneid puts forward, though in mythical form, what is precisely a reading of history, an attempt to show what the Fata Jovis were laboring to bring about. Everything is related not to Aeneas as an individual hero, but to Aeneas as the Rome-bearer. This and almost only this gives significance to his escape from Troy, his amour with Dido, his descent into Hades, and his defeat of Turnus. Tante molis erat, 
so great a task. All history is for Virgil an immense parturition. It is from this pagan source that one kind of historicism descends to Dante. The historicism of the De Monarchia, though skillfully and of course sincerely mortized into the Judaic and Christian framework, is largely Roman and Virgilian. St. Augustine, indeed, may be rightly described as a Christian historicist, but it is not always remembered that he became one in order to refute pagan historicism. The De Civitate answers those who trace the disasters of Rome to the anger of the rejected gods. I do not mean to imply that the task was uncongenial to St. Augustine, or that his own historicism is merely an argumentum ad hominem. But it is surely absurd to regard as specifically Christian in him the acceptance of a terrain which had in fact been chosen by the enemy. The close connection which some see between Christianity and historicism thus seems to me to be largely an illusion. There is no prima facie case in its favor on such grounds as that. We are entitled to examine it on its merits. What appears on Christian premises to be true in the historicist's position is this. Since all things happen either by the divine will, or at least by the divine permission, it follows that the total content of time must in its own nature be a revelation of God's wisdom, justice, and mercy. In this direction, we can go as far as Carlyle or Novalis or anyone else. History is, in that sense, a perpetual evangel, a story written by the finger of God. If, by one miracle, the total content of time were spread out before me, and if, by another, I were able to hold all that infinity of events in my mind, and if, by a third, God were pleased to comment on it so that I could understand it, then, to be sure, I could do what the historicist says he is doing. I could read the meaning, discern the pattern. Yes, and if the sky fell, we should all catch larks. The question is not what could be done under conditions never vouchsafed us in via, nor even, so far as I can remember, promised us in patria, but what can be done now under the real conditions. I do not dispute that history is a story written by the finger of God, but have we the text? It would be dull work discussing the inspiration of the Bible if no copy of it had ever been seen on earth. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.